Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. testimony about your brother-in-law. Just um, make him stop. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> I love it. Praise the Lord. <clears throat> you know, I, I know an, uh, an atheist, former atheist now, led himself to Christ. Yeah. He's from uh, <clears throat> Homestead, Tennessee. He was a member of an atheist club there, and he, had the, he drew the fortunate assignment to go home and get a Bible and read a few passages of Scripture, and then he was supposed to come to the meeting the following week and mimic this preacher who lived down the street. And he got to the place of the atheist meeting, and he got up on the table and started walking around and mimicking this preacher. And this, you know, this preacher was one of those fire and brimstone, you know, fire-breathing preachers. And, and this guy was walking around on top of this table with that Bible in his hand, reading the Word of God and mimicking this preacher and had a handkerchief where he was wiping sweat and all kinds of stuff. And suddenly he fell off that table and screamed, and then got up and just ran out the door. And, <laughs> and one of the guys went out and, and laid his hand on him and said, Are you all right? He said, Get your hands off me. He said, I got to get saved here. <laughs> so it's just amazing what the Lord will do. And we'll, we'll, uh, we'll keep praying. Can't honor his request, but we'll keep praying. Praise the Lord for that. Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 5 this morning, and as Brother Roger said, this is one of those that, that God has impressed on my heart over several years. You know, if you want me to speak for 15 minutes, I have to think about it for a couple of days, but if you want me to speak for an hour, I'm ready now. <laughs> Amen. That's the way it works. It's kind of the way it works. <laughs> It's like the guy that they were meeting in an assembly and he got up and gave an impromptu speech that lasted about an hour and all of his colleagues rallied around him afterward because his argument had won the day and they said, man, that was a wonderful impromptu speech you gave. He said, yeah, he said, it's only, only been impromptu for the last 20 years. <laughs> and that's kind of the way it works. When Richard Nixon was the president of our country, he hopped around, as most of them do, on Air Force One. And was flying into Kansas City, Missouri one day, and uh, the pilots landed the plane, and they came back to visit with the president. And he said, I, you know, I've, I've got a disturbing question. He said, it seems like every time we land, 
He said, I barely see the runway come into view and the wheels touch down. He said, that seems awful dangerous to me. He said, why don't you give yourselves a little distance before you do that? And the captain said, well, Mr. President, we're just honoring the last three rules that we were taught in flight school. When flying an airplane, number one, you can't use airspace above you. Number two, you can't use airspeed you don't have. And number three, you cannot use runway that is behind you. Now hear that. You cannot use runway that is behind you. I look around the room and I see several, like myself, that have used up much of the runway God gave us to taxi on. Going to lift off before too long. Thank God there's young ones coming along behind that love the Lord. And we ought to be training and equipping them with, like there is no tomorrow, because there isn't. But <clears throat> we're going to lift off. And then there are young ones here that believe we have lots of time, but there's no guarantee in that. No guarantee in that. So what should we do in light of the fast movement of the runway of life as it hurries by? Well, let's look at Ephesians 5 and see what the Lord has to say about that. Just please keep your eye near the text. If you have a different translation, then just notice the difference in the translation. We'll break in at verse 6. I know your program says verse 11, but I want to break in at verse 6. Just kind of wallow in the Word. Don't worry so much about where we're going, but just get under the sound of the Word. It says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The sons of disobedience. He's talking about lost people there. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. With them. You know, I heard not long ago about a guy that was talking, he was so proud of the fact that his Bible study meets in a bar. <laughs> Bible study meets in a bar. You know, and he's just proud of that fact. Oh, yeah, we go to that bar and we have Bible study. You wonder which spirits are at work. <laughs> Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but you now are light in the Lord. Notice the contrast. Walk as children of light. That's a command. That's not a suggestion. That's a command. Carries the same force of command as the Ten Commandments or any other command God ever gave. It's a command. Walk in the light. You're children of light, so walk like it. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. As you walk in the light, as you live in the light of his word, then you will be able to discern the will of God. You know, I, I hear people all the time talking about, you know, the will of God and how can I know the will of God? And Well, what are you doing with the commands of God? 
How well are you doing with the commands? If you do well with the commands, you won't have any problem discerning the will. You just obey what he said do, and the will will follow. That's not a problem. I gravely fear a lot of people pray, Lord, show me your will. What do you mean? Do you want to consider it? <laughs> Is there an option? <laughs> Verse 11, and do not participate in the unfruitful deeds or works of darkness, but instead expose them or reprove them. See, there's no neutrality in this. There's no neutrality in this. I mean, I was engaged in an email conversation this week to you know, a couple guys that I know were at war, kind of. <laughs> and, uh, you know, one of them was proclaiming the word of God, and the other one said, you know, you're being too harsh. There were lost people on that, on that email. And, you know, I mean, yeah, that guy's prophecy was wrong, because I understand it was extra biblical, so we know that God didn't give him a word beside his word, but, but, but you're being too harsh. I mean, you know, lost people were there, and it was a good sentiment. I just wrote back and said, where are you going to drive them to? Hell number two. <laughs> we need to get, get past that. Get past that. Truth is what God says. And only what God says. And, you know, I mean, do we next go pick up when those things don't come true? Are we going to go stone that guy? Because <laughs> huh? that's what's supposed to happen. <laughs> he puts himself in the place of a prophet. Yeah. <laughs> Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them, reprove them, rebuke them. That's a command also. Christian, you're responsible to do that. So that's not very unloving. Not very loving. It's, it's most unloving if you know the truth and refuse to share it. That's unloving. For it's a disgrace even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. Remember, we're children of light. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. You, Christian, are the light of the world. And all things are exposed or made visible by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. Then he throws in an invitation. Sounds like a Baptist. For this reason, it says, awake, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, here he's going to give us the counsel, therefore, be careful how you walk. King James says, see then that you walk circumspectly, circumspectly. Not as fools, but as wise. Redeeming the time. Some of your translations say making the most of your time. It's literally redeeming the time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. 
And do not get drunk with wine, wherein is excess or dissipation. Let me stop, pull over and park a minute. That word excess or dissipation, that is the word in Greek, asotia. Sotia is the word for salvation. Soteriology is the study of the doctrine of salvation. Sotia is the word for salvation. And when you put an A in front of it, an alpha privative in Greek, it negates. It's no salvation. Wherein is no salvation. In other words, nothing good has ever come from a man getting drunk. Nothing good has ever come from a man getting drunk. Yet people hurry toward that. <laughs> Because there's a desperate, godless bit inside of a man towards that which does not save. It's part of the issue of total depravity. And without the presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit, for a man to choose that which is right in the sight of God, he can't. He can't. He said, don't be that way. So be not drunk with wine where is an excess, and here's how to prevent a course of going toward no salvation. Be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Now, that last phrase is also a command. Be filled with the Spirit. Again, carries the same force of command as the Ten Commandments or any, God, any command God ever gave. It's in the imperative mood and present tense continuous, so Christians are to go on being filled with the Spirit. It's a command. Now, that presupposes that it's possible to not be filled. Be filled with the Spirit. It's an imperative mood, so every Christian is to be constantly filled with the Spirit by command. By command, my mother used to say, son, I need you to cut the yard, cut the grass. In Kentucky, it's cut the yard, but cut the grass. <laughs> and, you know, if the grass had been cut, she wouldn't have had to give me, give me a command to do so. So we're commanded to be filled with the Spirit. Now, notice Scripture never commands us to be baptized with the Spirit. Never commands that. Never commands that. One of the largest, most divisive errors in Christianity today is this doctrine of a second blessing that says you have to be subsequent to your salvation, baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's not true. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 13 settles that matter where Paul emphatically states, by one spirit are we all baptized into one body and have all been made to drink of the same spirit. So scripture tells us that all Christians are baptized in or with the Holy Spirit. And if that weren't true, then Jesus would have two bodies. He'd have one that had just been saved and another body of super saints that had been baptized with the Holy Spirit. No, the baptism in or with the Holy Spirit is what places you in the body of Christ. It gives you your new position, your new position, contrasting to your old position in Adam 
the baptism of the Spirit or with the Spirit or in the Spirit places you in the body of Christ. It's positional fullness. Then the positional fullness is the basis of your experiential fullness, which is being filled with the Spirit. And you experience the fullness of the Spirit in exactly the same way that you experience positional fullness by simple faith in Jesus Christ. Confessing known sin and simple faith in Jesus Christ. It's a matter of faith in what he has done, not in anything that you yourself can do. I mean, apart from simple faith in Christ, there were no conditions that had to be met by the 120 disciples in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. No conditions outside of that that needed to be met. And the fact that we are commanded to be filled presupposes the possibility of not being filled. That's why it's not surprising to read about subsequent, frequent subsequent fillings in the book of Acts, such as Acts 4.8, Acts 4.31, Acts 9.17, Acts 13.9. Subsequent fillings, but not once do we read of a subsequent baptism with the Spirit. So we're commanded to be filled with the Spirit. Now, that means if you have a baby capacity, that baby capacity is to be filled. You see, some of us have been in the faith longer and should be more mature, and whatever that capacity is, is to be filled. No two Christians have the same capacity for filling. We're at different stages of growth, different stages of maturity. So whatever your capacity is, be it baby or be it veteran, that capacity is to be filled with the Spirit. Now let's look at the dominating phrase in this passage. It's found in verse 16. It reads, because the days are evil. The days are evil. Well, how can time, seconds, minutes, hours, and days be moral? Here, time is personified. So every second is like a person. Every minute is like a person. Every hour is like a person. Every day is like a person. And it just happens that just as persons are sinners, because of the sin that has been invested in them, days are also, being personal, are also full of evil. We're getting down to it now. <clears throat> now, there are two possible Greek words that translate by our English word evil. One of them means generic or general evil. That's not the word that's used here. The second word means active, aggressive, progressive, growing evil. And that's the word that's used in our text. So the days are actively, aggressively, progressively evil. That doesn't need much commentary, does it? That doesn't need much commentary at all. All you need to do is pick up the Patriot News or turn on CNN or any other news media outlet. And if you are looking at the world through a Christian worldview, you see that the days are progressively, actively, growingly evil. Not much commentary needed there. Now, <clears throat> we've got a serious problem on our hands because we're required 
to live, if we continue to live, we're required to live in a time that is shot through and through with evil. That means you can't count on this world getting any better. Sorry, I'm not one of those health, wealth, and prosperity guys. <laughs> this is what the book says. You can't count on this world. This is a disposable world that I'm all about. As pastor has rightly said, I am all about preserving and conserving. You know, we recycle and I'm not a tree hugger or anything, but, but all of that is wonderful. I'm a farm boy, so I have an appreciation for the land and crops and growing, et cetera, et cetera. But this is a disposable planet. Make no mistake. So here he gives us the counsel. He says we are to redeem the time because the days are aggressively, growingly, actively, progressively evil. Evil. We're to redeem the time because of that. Now again, keep your eye on the verse. Look at the word time. There are two possible Greek words that translate by our English word time. One is chronos, and the other one is kairos. Chronos, you recognize. That's the tick, tick, tick on the wall. That's the clock. That is wristwatch time or clock time or casual time, uh, calendar time. That's seconds and minutes and hours and days and weeks and months and years and decades and millennia time. That's measurable time. It's horizontal. It moves along the surface. It goes by us and we go by it. Calendar time. And unless you yield to the Spirit, you will do nothing redemptive in regard to that time. It will influence you, but you will not influence it. That's not the word that's used here. The word in the verse is kairos. Kairos, that's pinpoint time, that's opportune time, that's crisis time, that's divinely intersected time, if you will, where time moves along horizontally as a chronos, and suddenly God breaks in. It's like the day you were saved, or the day that somebody shared the gospel with you, or it could be the cab driver that God used to intersect Gary's life the other day. That's kairos time, pinpoint time, crisis time. It's divinely intersected time. Now that's the word time. And we are to redeem time from chronology into crucial divinely intersected time with every breath we take with every moment we live, every step. Now that's the counsel that he gives us here. And it's a command to redeem the time. Now, look at the word redeem. Some of your translations say in verse 16, making the most of your time. It's literally to redeem the time. And this is a world in a word. The Greek word is ex zeminoid. Got 16 letters in it. It's completely nuts. That don't mean a thing to you. <laughs> Unless we explain it. Okay. Now, I had a question. Do you think you could take a word 
with 16 letters in it in one language, the most expansive language known to man, Greek, and translated in a word that has six letters in it without losing something awfully important. Well, that's what we just did. (laughs) At the root of this word is the word agora. It's a word for marketplace, a marketplace. It's an open, bizarre market, such as the marketplace on Mars Hill where Paul preached was such a place. Agora. That's the root. Agorazo means to buy in the marketplace. Okay, so it means that you go to the market, you give your money, and you purchase a commodity, a commodity in the market. Ex agorazo means that once you've purchased that item, you've purchased it not to put it back on the shelf, but you purchased it to take it out to monopolize for your purpose. Now, that's the word that's used here. And here's what that means. Time personified, second, 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 minute, 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 hour, hour, person, 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 on and on. Time is to be redeemed. It comes along in front of you and it's under the control of sin. It's under the chains and bondage of sin because Satan is the God of this world. So it comes in front of you and it's under the domain of sin. And if you're a Christian and you just stand there and do nothing redemptive with that time, you're in sin. Did you catch that? Have you ever heard that, that, that while in a way your time idly is sin? Say, what? I didn't write it. We are to redeem the time. Redeem the time. If you do nothing but watch it go by, it'll influence you, but you won't influence it. It'll be just like television. We watch that thing. (laughs) Man, it'll influence you, but you'll not influence it. Not at all. It's almost a total waste of time. (laughs) And man, isn't it awesome what Satan does to our minds and hearts with regard to that little box. We got flat screens now that hang up there. I remember when they were black and white and big tube things. And I mean, I I thought, I didn't know that my favorite football team, the Raiders uh, uniforms were black and white until we got color TV. (laughs) Ah, we're a little bit above buffalo terry Uh, (laughs) oh that's hard (laughs) but it's almost a total waste of time sitting there watching that thing it really is it'll influence you but you'll not influence influence it see there's no neutral innocent in this you're committed to Satan's program unless you deliberately use your means of exchange to buy time out of Kronos into Kairos. You're committed to his program. Unknowingly, unwittingly committed to his program if you aren't deliberately attempting to redeem the time. 
Now, that's what this passage is about. What a text it makes for a New Year's Day. What a text. We are to redeem the time. Now, see if I can illustrate that to you. Suppose you're on a long cross-country trip by train. And you're traveling a day and a night. When you travel at night, most of what you do in that train is a perfect example of chronological time. It's self-contained, self-curled. In other words, if you look out the window of the train, you can't see anything, it's dark. So the world around you doesn't have any determination to you. It's everything self-contained in the car. It's the person across from you. It's the food you eat. It's the light that's inside the car. It's everything that's right there self-curled, self-contained, that is an example of chronological moving on time. But suppose you come into a station and suddenly there's lights outside. And suddenly your attention is monopolized by something that you had no awareness of previously. That's an example of Kairos time. And you give your, your attention to something else altogether. Now, there is a difference in the person who never redeems the time, just moving along in the darkness around him, self-curled, self-contained, paying attention to himself. He talks about himself. He thinks about himself. There is no reality elsewhere. That person is characterized by sin, S-I-N, selfishness. That's what he's characterized by. But suppose under the sovereignty and providence of God, God interrupts that schedule and suddenly, there's a whole new world that he didn't know was there. That's Kairos time. That's what happened to you the day you were saved. God broke in, intersected that chronological time, and suddenly you're aware of a whole new world that you didn't know existed before. This text is a very vivid explanation of how to do that, how to redeem that time into spiritual usefulness. So let me give you three rules, three rules, and I'll be done. Three rules. If I'm going to redeem the time, number one, my steps must be carefully guarded from perversion. My steps must be carefully guarded from perversion. Look at verse 15. See then that you walk circumspectly. King Jim, Roger. <laughs> Not as fools, but as wise. Now draw a circle in your mind around that word walk. What is a walk? What is a walk? Do you ever think about that? Probably not, because everybody in here is pretty mobile. But a walk is nothing more than a succession of near falls. Isn't that right? Nothing more than a succession of near falls. If you go to walk and you pick your foot up, if you don't put your foot down, you're going to fall. It is a succession of near falls. That's what a walk is. There's an old Chinese proverb that says, even a journey of a thousand miles still begins with the first step. You see, when you get up from your seat to go to your car, you'll be walking. Here's what's involved in that. There's motion involved. There's direction involved, and there's progression involved. In other words, if you never make any motion, you're not going to get to your car. 
And if you get up and head in the opposite direction, you're not going to get there either. And if you start to go and you stop and talk, as my wife tells me I do a lot, <laughs> you're not going to get there either because <laughs> there's, no, there's no progression. So that's a walk. It's a, made up of a succession of small steps, small steps, a succession of near falls. And again, you don't think about this because you're conditioned to walk, but you let a person who has an accident suddenly become immobile and then have to learn to walk all over again. You know, I've had to do that. That's not fun. That's not fun. You feel really strange. You feel really stupid. You're like, man, there's that two-year-old just strolling along effortlessly, <laughs> and I'm having to learn how to do this again. I remember my middle son, or my youngest son, my middle child, correct myself, my youngest son was, was like, he was like ADD on steroids, man. He was like, <laughs> he would zoom everywhere he went, just zooming along. And I got a grandbaby that's just like him. I'm enjoying that. <laughs> Can't walk anywhere, just, just wide open, a rocket. And I'd constantly say, son, watch where you're going. Watch your step. Watch where you're going. And that's precisely what the Holy Spirit is telling us in this passage. Son, watch where you're going. Watch your step. Not your walk as a big thing, but each successive step is a little thing. The big things will take care of themselves. If you watch the little ones. I used to work as, uh, for the L&N Railroad as a high-voltage guy as a high-voltage superintendent. And, uh, you know, I, I, I enjoyed working with my hands and working with the guys. And, and we'd build, the railroad buys all of its power in a primary stage and transforms it down. So we would actually even build these huge towers, transmission towers. And, you know, you'd be standing 100 feet in the air on an 8-inch beam with a guy down on the ground with an air gun shooting bolts and nuts and stuff at you 100 feet from the ground. And I promise you, you're not concerned about the traffic. You're not concerned about the wildlife. You're not concerned about the scenery. You're not concerned about anything else except exactly what you're doing, watching your walk as a succession of steps. That's what he's talking about here. A wise Christian will watch not his walk as a total thing, but his steps individually. And God help me when I say that, because often I don't do that. Don't look pious. You don't either. <laughs> now, if you got on a halo here this morning, you better loosen that up and let it tilt. Because, man, I come after halos. They're not real. I know they ain't real. Because I know us. I live among us. I'm one of us. It's not real. Okay? Quite often, I don't watch my steps. And neither do you. Neither do you. You see, this is not 
one way. I'm glad I get to stand up when I say these things. I don't have to sit there and be smashed by that. <laughs> it's real. It's real. Not here to pontificate to sound like a pope, and the pope shouldn't try to sound that way either. <laughs> you don't know the marks of counterfeit righteousness, what I call parlor righteousness. You know counterfeit righteousness when you feel diminished in its presence. Did you hear that? You know counterfeit righteousness when you feel diminished in its presence. True righteousness never makes anybody else feel diminished because it's humble enough to know that it's only by the grace of God that that righteousness is being experienced at the moment. <laughs> at the moment, you see. I was listening to Steve Brown, and uh, he, he has a lot of wonderful things to say. You've got to be mature to listen to Steve Brown. <laughs> you really do. Or somewhat mature, because you'll think that this cannot be right, but it is. He said, quote, never accept advice about a difficult matter from somebody who won't admit to you that it's difficult. I will say that again. Never accept advice about a difficult matter from someone who will not admit to you or agree with you that that matter is difficult. Now, I remember I was in Florida and these guys were going to teach me to ski, and maybe I've told you this, and if I did, bear with me. They were going to teach me to ski and uh, water ski, Florida. Okay. I got deep tan. I don't, I don't snow ski. But <laughs> hey, I'm just keeping it real. <laughs> Look around you. But, <laughs> but, but they're teaching me to water ski. And uh, these three brothers, they grew up on skis. They grew up on skis and on water. And I mean, they, you know, they lived on the lake all their lives. And, you know, I mean, these guys, they, they did it and they did it well. And they had one of these banana boats. That's what I call them. That thing would, a gazillion, got more horsepower than my car. And I got a car that's got 600 horsepower. Got more <laughs> horsepower than my car. And they get in that thing. And, and, you know, they were going to teach me to ski. And one of the brothers was at the helm. And then me and two of the other brothers were, were back with the ropes, you know. And, uh, and he must have thought everybody was up. <laughs> you know, because he powered that thing up. Just, and everybody wasn't up. Do you know how water hurts? It's like bouncing on concrete, man. <laughs> And I promised myself before God, if he'd get me off of those skis, I wouldn't be back on them again. And he did, and I haven't. <laughs> but if I ever did want to learn to ski, I know the kind of person I want to teach me. I don't want somebody that does it naturally. I want somebody that knows what it's like to fall down. Can appreciate where I'm at. What's going on with me. That's the kind of person I want to teach me. That's what qualifies me to preach this to you because I am one who studies it carefully because I know 
but I struggle with it, and I know you do too. Amen? Look at verse 15 again. Look at the word circumspectly. What in the word does, world does that mean? Some of your translations say there, for be careful how you walk. It's literally walk circumspectly. Well, one translation says strictly. Some of your translations say exactly. Some of your translations say cautiously. Another one says carefully. I love the one that King James uses here, circumspectly. You see, the glasses on my bubbling brown sugar's face over there are called spectacles. Spectacles. It's the word for seeing. It's what the word means. Retrospect looking is looking around you. Prospect looking is looking in front of you. Introspect is looking inside you. Inspection is looking inside whatever it is that you're looking at. Circum means around. Around. To circulate means to move around, such as the blood in, in your body, your systems. Circumscribe means to draw a circle around. Circumstance means that which surrounds you and prevails on your life. Circumspectly means that you walk carefully, looking at everything all around you all the time, and you do not take anything for granted. That's the counsel he's given us. I can't tell you anything more vocationally valid for a Christian than that. Looking around. Being aware of your surroundings all the time. And that's precisely what this passage is telling us. Now, check your last week by this, and I want to ask you a question. How Christian are you? Not your neighbor. Not your pastor. Not the elders. Not the deacons. How Christian are you by this standard? By this standard, it's only one that counts. Nothing else matters. Truth is what God says. Let me give you the second rule. Not only must your steps be carefully guarded from perversion, but our schedules must be consciously guided by plan. Our schedules must be consciously guided by plan. Verse 17 says, be not unwise. Unwise. It's the Greek word aphronis. Phronis means to think. It's the word for your mind. Remember what we said? You put that A in front of it. Aphronis means no thinking. No thinking. To muse means to think. Amusement means no thinking. We have gone amusement mad in this country. It's completely nuts. It's, it's, it's as if that's all we live for. It's amusement, no thinking. Some folks come to church and don't want to think. They want to be inspired. You know, want to be blessed. 
Huh? Is that true? Now, you know it's true. Loosen up the halo. Let it tilt. (laughs) We're an amusement mad society. We've gone completely overboard with that. That's why we'll pay a guy $120,000 a game to hit a baseball, and we don't want to give our teachers forty grand a year. It's quiet in here now. (laughs) It's amazing, staggering how many people never do much thinking at all. And they never learn to think biblically. You can tell that by the way they talk. They don't sound like they've been in the Word of God. You talk to them, they're talking to you with the world's wisdom all the time. They never repeat the Bible. They don't sound like they've spent any time in the Word of God. Why? Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's what God's Word says. So if you're not saturated with that Word, it's not going to come out. And if you are, you can't help it. It'll just ooze out. People will be mad at you. <laughs> you know, they'll be upset with you. So why does he always have to make it, you know, biblical? He always has to give a reference to the scriptures. Well, that's you are who you are. Paul says, don't be mindless. In other words, don't just take everything for granted, but rather understand what the will of the Lord is. Now let me give you a sub-rule, a subsidiary rule. The main problem of life is to find the will of God. The main pursuit of life is to follow the will of God. The main prerogative of life is to fulfill the will of God. And the main privilege of life is to finish the will of God. Do I need to say that again? I will anyway. The main problem of life is to find the will of God. The main pursuit of life is to follow the will of God. The main prerogative of life is to fulfill the will of God. And the main privilege of life is to finish the will of God. Did you notice how Jesus put it? Those men came back and they said, Master, eat. And he said, I've had meat to eat that you know not of. And they must have wondered, well, did somebody bring you a Big Mac? Or, you know, what do you mean? And he said, listen, my meat is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. What that means, backing into that, If you don't do the will of God, you die by starvation. Oh, you'll be alive and you'll do all kinds of stuff, but you'll die to reality. You'll die to reality because what this world teaches us is not reality. It's not. 
and we start that at a very young age, a very young age, by teaching our children about St. Cinderclaws. That's what he was called in Holland, the guy who was an old white-bearded bishop that rode around on a horse and showed up about December 6th delivering packages to good children and switches to the parents of bad children. <laughs> okay. So we start that at a very young age, separating our children from reality. So, oh, Jim, that's a bah humbug type thing to say. <laughs> yeah, well, because it's not about that. It's not what it's about anyway. It's about his P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E, not P-R-E-N-T-E-S. There's a difference. So if you're going to redeem the time, your schedule has to be constantly guided by the plan of God. Let me quickly give you the last point. If you're going to redeem the time... My spirit must be completely governed by the presence of God. My spirit must be completely governed by the presence of God. Look at verse 18. It says, be not drunk with wine words in excess, but be filled with the spirit. Think of the two adjectives, drunk, filled. Think of the two nouns, wine, spirit. Think of the imbalance here. It says that a person who's drunk with wine is guilty of excess, but when it speaks of being filled with the Spirit, there's no acknowledgement of even the possibility of excess. It's quite apparent this is intended to be a contrast. Then there are two stimulants here. Wine is a stimulant and the Spirit is a stimulant. When a person drinks wine, he's under the control of spirits within him. When a person is filled with the Spirit of God, he is under the control of the Spirit within him. One stimulant is superficial. The other stimulant is supernatural. One is devilish. The other divine. One makes you less of a man or woman. The other makes you more of a man or woman. One makes you irresponsible. The other one makes you fully responsible. One disables you. The other one enables you. And on and on you can go. So which one do you want? You tell him which one you want by the way you live every day, whether you know it or not. Whether you know it or not. I'm only giving you the chance to change from the poor stimulant. It doesn't have to be wine. It can be any one of 10,000 different things. Any one of 10,000 different things. Wine's only a good symbol. It's just intended to show a contrast, but also a comparison. What about you? What about you? Now, I don't know where you are. You don't know where I am. But wherever you are, you can only come to the Lord from where you are. That's all He requires. Are your steps carefully guarded against perversion? Is your schedule 
guided strictly by your daytimer or by the plan of God? Is your spirit governed by the presence of God? If these things are true of you, then in 2011, you will redeem the time in these evil days. Again, what a text it makes for the first Sunday of the new year. Would you stand? Deeply appreciate the way you've listened as God has spoke to us and sifted us. I want to remind you to pray for Pastor Terry as he is uh, under the weather right now.